0: It's not every day that you get to have a conversation with someone like Steve Merle. He's the president of Every Nation Churches, and back in the early 80s, he went on a missions trip that ended up establishing Victory Church in the Philippines, which has now over 100,000 people and has planted churches all over the world. He's the author of several books, including "A 100 Years From Now, Wiki Church, The Multiplication Challenge, and My First Three Attempts at Parenting, He's been an incredible leader and mentor and influence even on my life, and it's a real honor to be able to sit down with him and chat about his story and his journey in ministry and leadership. Steve Merle, welcome to the podcast. Do you prefer Steve, El Presidente, your honor? what, uh, What are you most comfortable with?
1: Uh, Mr. Merle. <laughs> no, uh, Steve is better. Everything else makes me feel old. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh,
0: Steve, this is, a, this is a really pivotal moment for our podcast. Uh, you serve in a really great leadership role for our movement worldwide, serving as the president, and you get to interact at, uh, at a lot of different levels. Uh, but I want to kind of take it back to the origins of your journey, the reluctant leader, the accidental missionary, according to your blog websites. So how is it that you got roped in to
1: the ministry that you're in now? Okay, I I don't know if you want to get to this right now, because I heard that you had Pastor Dan Stevens on here before, and you had I did. privately wanted me to clean up some of the heresies that he threw out there. Do you want to touch on that now or but, get to that later? The problem is it's just going to take so much time. Okay, and you could probably edit that out anyway? I can,
0: if I need it. Yeah, I can if I needed to. Uh, it was okay. the swearing and the cussing constantly that was...
1: <laughs> so it went from an hour down to about 30 minutes after yeah, the edits. That's right. It's just a solid beep, 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 beep. You know, so... Okay. It'll be like his sermons then. (laughs) All right. Um, You know, the idea, uh, when I think about natural leaders, that would be my older brother, Jim. Okay. Everything he did, he was a leader. He was always the athletically the best on the team. He was always the captain. He was always in the front. I was never any of that. I um, I was more of a natural born follower. And any leadership position I've been in, it's always happened to me rather than something I pursued. It's it's almost like um, there was nobody left to do it and uh, I didn't run away. And so, um, but I'm thankful. I look back and I'm thankful for the leadership uh, situations uh, that God has put me in. Um, it seems like many times Rice Brooks was involved okay. in inviting me to something, inviting me somewhere, uh, opening doors. and So you and I were through. college
0: friends or friends before college? No, college. College friends. He's yeah. a couple
1: of years older, so I was a freshman. He was a junior. Yeah. And I remember the day a classmate, uh, a guy named Alan and I, we had a, an accounting class together, saw Rice at a restaurant, invited him to a Bible study, a campus Bible study. Okay. And he came and had an encounter with Jesus that night. Yeah. And uh, we've been friends ever since.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Rice is the author of the book, God's Not Dead, which inspired the movie. He's been a big leader and pastor for our Every Nation family of churches for a long time. So that name's going to be familiar to some of you guys out there and someone hoping to uh, have on the podcast on some day. That'll be some fun conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so Mississippi State is your alma mater. Yes. And uh, so where, where do things go from from Mississippi
1: State? Well, before I got there, I I didn't really grow up in church. Okay. Um, My mom was Catholic. My dad was nothing. And uh, the compromise uh, became Anglican. That's the compromise. That's the compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can see that. My dad would not sign the papers saying that he would raise his kids to be Catholic. So the Catholic church wouldn't marry him. And so we grew up uh, Mother's Day and Easter Anglicans or Episcopals. Okay. Um, yep, sure. But a youth pastor came to my high school and, uh, in the mid 70s and would share the gospel every day in our cafeteria. He would show up at every track meet, baseball game, basketball game, football game. And I actually thought he worked for the school for a while. And then I realized later he was the youth pastor from First Presbyterian Church and he had he was fresh out of reform theological seminary had just graduated his first job to me he was a spiritual giant in reality he was just out of seminary had no clue what he was doing (laughs) and he would come to our high school and i don't know why the high school let him do that i don't know why of all the high schools in jackson mississippi he picked mine but over a six-month period he shared the gospel with me multiple times okay and uh, it finally made sense and i I sort of surrendered to Ron, that was the youth pastor. Okay. sort of surrendered to Jesus. And then he put me, added me to what he called an action group. I think that was a Campus Crusade term at the time, Okay. which was a small group discipleship group, a little, little group of about seven of us. Okay. And he taught us how to pray. He taught us how to read the Bible. He was really big on memorizing scripture. We memorized chapters. I'm 16 years old, I've been to church Mother's Day and Easter, pretty much, and suddenly I'm memorizing scripture, and that was that was the discipleship. It was getting the Word deep in our hearts, yeah. getting serious about reading and studying the Bible to the point of memorizing it. Okay. So that was the starting point.
0: So that was the starting point. And that was in high school? How old, how old were you? 16 in high- years old. 16? Yeah. Okay.
1: So Graduated a couple of years later, and show up at Mississippi State University, and my first week on campus. I meet a brand new campus missionary, Walter Walker. Yeah. Who uh, is a today? You know Walter. Yeah, he's I know a Freelance Walter, yeah. writer. He's a communications consultant, and he he discipled me for those four years.
0: I think I've technically written things that Walter has actually written. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's quote unquote helped me write a few like blogs and okay, articles, yeah. but uh, he wrote it, and I said this looks great,
1: and uh, <laughs> off it went. Yeah. Yes. Walter, yeah, Walter has written quite a few bestsellers, actually. Has he really? Don't have his name on them. Well, that makes some sense. Some of the most uh, well-known, famous pastors in America, some of the largest churches. No kidding. And Walter has penned their books. He's the ghostwriter, huh? Yes, he is. Oh, I, he awesome. was. He's okay. a, other th- more of a consultant now. Gotcha. So. Yeah. So you met, met Walter. Yeah. And then where things go from there? I meet him um, on campus. He was passing on invitations to Bible studies. And uh, I said, wow, this, I'm new on campus. I'm looking for a Christian group to get involved in. And he said, well, I'm starting one. And so I was there at the very first one. And as we mentioned Rice earlier, it was a semester later, invited Rice. And, um, and it, it, Walter gave me an opportunity to go on summer mission trips, mm-hmm. to go on spring break mission trips, and really get involved in ministry as a student. Okay. 18, 19, 20 years old doing significant ministry. And uh, it, it once I started doing ministry, I knew that was more than just a spring break and a summer. It really was a calling that I discovered that that um, there was something that God wanted me to do, not just something Walter was giving opportunities for.
0: What aspect of ministry really caught you or or, you know, lit you know, your fire?
1: Yeah, um, I've always gravitated. I think if I didn't end up being a pastor, missionary, church planter, probably would be a university professor or teacher. Interesting. Um, I'm really wired more of a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even from even, even before I was a believer, whether it was teaching people how to ski or teaching, uh, teaching people how to hunt or the things we grew up doing, uh, it seemed like looking back, I had um, probably a God-given ability to make complex can- things simple mm-hmm. and explain things. Yep. So I think I probably probably would have gravitated toward teaching in some way. Okay,
0: and were you doing a fair amount of that? Were you preaching and teaching? Is that part of the ministry that you were doing at that point? Or
1: you know, Walter gave us a lot of opportunities. Okay, um, it was a small. I mean, we. Sometimes a couple of dozen people. That that was it. Yeah. I mean, it peaked at maybe fifty. Yeah. Uh, students in Mississippi State. Yeah. But Walter gave us a lot of opportunities. I remember doing my dorm Bible study. Yeah. Walter would teach us how to do it, and uh, this is way back. You know, in the seven, uh, well, the yeah, eighties, late seventies, early eighties. Okay. And, um, and we had people spilling out into the hallways uh, in the dorm Bible studies, and. And you know Walter empowered us to do that. That's great. Trained us, and sometimes in the big gatherings he would allow me, Rice, others, to uh, give it a shot. It was usually terrible. Yeah. And uh, probably heretical, <laughs> uh, but he let us do
0: it. So what? So where did that lead to? Kind of post college. Uh,
1: my last semester, Walter gathered a few of us together and said. Uh, I'm moving to Nebraska to start a new campus ministry.
0: Where, in Lincoln? In Lincoln, No kidding. University
1: of Nebraska. No kidding,
0: and, I got uh, roots there. D- really? Yeah, I was born in Nebraska. You're kidding. Yeah, born in Nebraska, grandparents, wow. my grandpa was tenure at uh, UNL. What did he teach? Uh, agricultural wow. engineering, yeah. yeah. So, so I've, been, you, I've been to Lincoln, uh, many a frozen winter, so yeah.
1: Well, Walter packed it up, that was December of 1980. Okay. I had another semester left. And he looked at us, and we said, well, what's going to happen to this little group of about 30, 40 people? And he looked, and he said, Steve, you're in charge now. And it was interesting. He didn't ask me if I wanted to do it. He didn't ask me to pray about it. He didn't ask me if I felt called. He just said, I'm leaving to start a new one, and uh, you're in charge. So my last, uh, I was 20 years old, my last semester. I took my, a few classes okay. and graduated, but I did... I became the pastor of this little campus group. Wow! So, and how long? How long were you doing that for? Did that for about a year and a half, okay. and then um, had the opportunity. And every summer, you know, we're talking Mississippi State, so yeah. we're, we're talking about a campus of about fifteen thousand students in a town, startville Mississippi, that had about fifteen thousand people. So in the summertime stores would close, restaurants would close, the students right. were gone, and basically the town shut down. Yeah. Now, Corvallis would be a mega city compared to Starkville. Yeah, not that much bigger. Yeah?
0: Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, well, when I moved there, I think it was around 30,000 okay. was the city, and I think the campus was around, yeah, 12 or 15,000, so pretty, you know, relatively comparable.
1: Yeah, and so what else are you going to do? You're a campus missionary, and so summer, everyone's gone, restaurants are closed, and so you go on summer missions. Yeah. So every summer, we would go on a mission trip somewhere, which was great, come back and meet the students in the fall, but um, 1984, I went on one of those summer mission trips and uh, after a week or two there in Manila, it was obvious I wasn't supposed to leave. So and
0: why was it so obvious you weren't supposed to leave from know it's, Manila? You
1: it, it's, it's hard to say except... I'm not a one of those word from God kind of people mm-hmm. where God speaks and God said and yep. that kind of thing. But from the day we landed, so I'm leaving a town of 15,000 plus another 15,000 students, and I'm yep. going to a city of 15 million. And looking at the people on the buses, I for one I had never seen poverty like that. Mm. We're talking 1984, Manila, Philippines. It was it was political upheaval. There were riots in the streets. In many of our evangelistic moments, there were tear gas canisters thrown several really? times where people were shot. The military actually fired into the crowds. And and we were down there preaching with megaphones in the middle of that. But there was something happened in me looking at the crowds. And it reminds me of, of Jesus looking at crowds. And it says his heart was moved with compassion. Hmm. And then miracles started happening yeah. um, with Jesus. But with me... I looked on crowds and I'm, you know, my dad's from West Texas and I was raised with the West Texas adage that men don't cry. I mean, you know, I'm five, six years old, fall down, bleeding. My dad would look at me and say, hey, men don't cry. I mean, yeah. okay, I'm five. I'm a man. I'm not going to cry. But So I'm not a real teary kind of person. But when I got to the Philippines and saw the crowd, something changed in my heart. Really? And my eyes started sweating quite regularly.
0: <laughs> yeah, allergy season kicked up for you. And- yeah,
1: we don't cry, but our eyes sweat yeah. occasionally. okay. So I had sweaty eyes a lot, and it was God doing something in my heart, compassion for the people. And um, I looked around, and I, and, and it was um, partially the poverty, partially the crowds, yeah. partially the spiritual hunger that people had, and I basically couldn't leave.
0: Describe um, the spiritual hunger. I mean, what was... Obviously, it was something was working. It was effective. There was responses happening. What was, what was that atmosphere like?
1: You know, it's interesting, Seth, because in those days, um, economically, the Philippines was called the sick man of Asia. Okay. It was, it was uh, the economy was in shambles. Fifteen years prior, it was one of the strongest economies in all of Asia. And now it's a place of poverty. And 1984, when we got there, for the first six or seven years we were there, the poverty was horrible, and churches were growing. Uh, was one of some of the fastest church growth in at that time in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, the economy stabilized, and church growth stopped. Now our church didn't. Our church grew slowly in the days of poverty when the rest of the churches were exploding. When church growth kind of flatlined in the Philippines late 80s through the mid 90s. Mm-hmm our church took off. Our church growth patterns have always been the opposite of whatever was going on in the nation with the rest of the churches. I don't know why. Um, But this will be the 34th year anniversary of our church uh, this year. And there's never been one year when we didn't grow numerically larger than the previous year for 34 years. Hmm. Uh, There's never been one year when we didn't baptize more people than the previous year. Hmm. Um, And so we've had continuous growth, incremental growth for Mm -hmm. 17 to 20 years that has gone from incremental to quite substantial growth uh, after that. Um, But it's kind of the spiritual hunger you ask about. I think many times when a nation's in turmoil, riots in the streets, that type of thing, the poverty, people are crying out to God. When the church growth nationwide stopped or flatlined, it really had to do with the economic boom that hit. Hmm. And that's kind of where the Philippines is now. It's one of the strongest economies in Asia, and uh, we're not seeing the rapid growth across the board like we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something about uh, when people have nothing else crying out to God. Yeah.
0: So what was what was those kind of early couple weeks like? So you're on this mission trip. Did you know anything about the Philippines before you went on this trip? I mean, is that something that you ever
1: thought about before, prayed about before? <laughs> Did you know any Filipinos? Never met a Filipino. Wasn't even sure where it was. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I get a call in May from Rice Brooks and he says, Hey, I'm leading a team of students on a summer mission trip to the Philippines and Korea. Why don't you come with me? And I said, Rice, when you were leaving, it was three weeks. Uh, So not much advance warning. Yeah. And I said, I didn't pray about it. I didn't have a word from God. I just said, Well, okay. Uh, Mississippi State shuts down in the summer, nothing else to do, so how much does it cost? And he threw some numbers out. I said, okay, if I can find the money, then I'll go with you. So my wife and I called a few friends and the money came in and we went. We had to go get a passport first, and and, uh, so we went. Um, it It was a last minute afterthought, but it wasn't long after landing that something just radically changed in my soul. Yeah. Uh, where I, you know, you may hear people say that who've, who've lived a life overseas. I, I I couldn't go back. I couldn't leave. Yeah. Um, my heart changed.
0: So give us an idea of the scale in terms of you're landed, you're preaching, uh, you're, you know, you're proclaiming the gospel, people responding, um, like how many people are coming, hearing, or responding? I mean, how quickly at that point are you seeing things take effect? Uh, I mean, a lot of times you hear you know missionary stories where it takes years and years. You know, they spend a lot of time and energy before anyone will even get, pay them attention. Uh, but I guess how quickly
1: did this this thing grow? Yeah. Well, we had we had planned. Um, Manila is a huge city, as I said, but there's one area called the University Belt. Okay where there are a couple of hundred thousand university students within a few mile radius and their campuses on every corner. Uh, It's a very, um, in that time, a very gang-infested, dangerous part of the city, a very dirty part of the city. It would be in America, we would talk about inner city type of area. Uh, The advanced team that went in looked around the city and thought, there are no churches in this part of the city, so hey, let's go here. And they thought, this is where all the students are, let's go here. Yeah.
0: Um, Little did they know there was a good reason there was
1: no <laughs> church in there, right? yeah, There were a lot of churches that <laughs> tried to go there, okay. they never lasted in the time that we've been there. Uh, oh. I don't know, maybe a dozen churches have started and, and died mm-hmm. in that area because the turnover of students, that nobody stays. Yeah, um, They go there, they get their education, then they go somewhere else to work, another mm-hmm. part of the city. Um, but that was, we started in one of the poorest areas of the city and then reached the rest of the city from there. We did it backwards.
0: Yeah, yeah that is very backwards.
1: Yeah, and we had many well-meaning Pastors in the city, uh, American missionaries in the city, warning us, "Don't go there." Why would you? Yeah. Why would you start there? Of course, we were naive and. And young and dumb, and yeah. hey, there's no other churches, no competition. This looks yeah, like right. a great spot.
0: Yeah, you would just naturally think you go reach the place where the resources are. Once you've recessed, you know, reached that place, resources are now available, you know, through giving us over. Now you can leverage those resources to go reach the place that are under resourced, yeah. but you don't think about it going the yeah, other way. Did it
1: exactly opposite. Yeah, right. So our offerings in those days were very heavy, they were all coins. Okay. <laughs> uh, there was you know every now and then a piece of paper was put in there it's like cash look at this and and uh it was really a um it was really a walk of faith and again we didn't i was a very untrained ill-prepared missionary i didn't ever see myself as a missionary actually i thought of myself as a church planter okay um but we didn't do foreign funding we decided from day one Everything we do will be locally funded. I don't know why I decided that. I'm glad I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, We even had, now I was supported as a missionary. Uh, I say supported, it was in the early days, it was, it's a stretch to call what I did support. Mm -hmm. But many times teams would come for the first 10 years and they would see our Filipino staff. They would feel sorry for them because of poverty and Americans would say, I want to sponsor a Filipino pastor. Mm -hmm and for some reason i would always say no um, we're going to build the type of church that is self supportive we're not going to be dependent on my friends from america and then if i'm gone for some reason and i'm out of here then the whole thing collapses financially and so there was a lot of sacrifice uh, early on because of uh, my refusal to be dependent financially on the west to build a local church that truly was local, that yeah. was locally governed, locally funded, uh, locally led. And uh, I, I I, regret a lot of the things I did early on. I don't regret that one. Yeah, That was one of the few really good decisions we made. Yeah, And it was tough. Now, if someone wanted to buy us a new sound system, a one-time deal, sure, I would right. take it. Yeah, but that's I would a different not story. allow uh, the cash flow to come from abroad.
0: We yeah. just wouldn't do it. Um, I remember we have uh, really good family friends who are now missionaries in Cambodia. Actually, you know, them, uh, mutual friends of ours. And when they first went to Cambodia, the first rule they were taught by the uh, local leaders in place was to never tell the Cambodians that they're poor. Never tell them they're poor, yeah. and so anytime they would gather as a church, or there was, uh, they would take an offering. Um, they would request an offering from them the same way you would anywhere else in the world, no matter what the resources were. And offerings would be small, or a chicken, or you know, half a chicken, or something like that. But it created a mindset in them that that gave them dignity and empowered them. To see that whatever they had, they could use it for God's glory. It didn't matter how much they had, and it allowed the church to get off the ground instead of being dependent upon outside resources and making them entitled or feeling like they're less than somehow. Um, it uh, it's a hard thing to do, I would think, on the front end. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it's really powerful in terms of its long-term impact.
1: And, and I think our it as a pastor it it forced me to teach what the Bible teaches about generosity and giving. And our people learn to give rather than receive from abroad. It also taught our early Filipino leaders not to go to their missionary resource person to get money. It taught them to go to God. And they learned how to get on their knees and fast and pray and and cry out to God for provision and see, Provision miracles. And early on also right from the beginning when we were poor as a church um, and really one of the poorest areas of the city uh, with a bunch of students, uh, we started giving to missions right from day one. We Mm. also started giving. We found a ministry that was feeding street children and we partnered with them and started giving money and knowing that we need to give to missions and we need to give to the poor. Yeah. And you think, well, wait a minute, everybody in the church was poor, but we found people <laughs> yeah. poor. Right. And there's always someone who's in a deeper level of poverty. Right. And so those two things marked us from day one, that we're going to be a church that gives to missions and we're going to be a church that gives to help the poor. Yeah. Uh, even if we are a mission field and even if we're poor ourselves, we're still going to do that. And that... I think to this day, 34 years later, that's still a part of the fabric of yeah. of who we are as a church in Manila.
0: It's an important mentality. It's important. I've been around a lot of churches who um, they fall into that trap of, of receiving outside resources and almost get addicted to it, yeah. right? And so they always convinced if we just had 10 more thousand, if we just had this level of support coming yeah. in, then we could get to the next thing. Not realizing from the get-go of trusting God, providing utilizing what god has provided instead of depending on what he hasn't um, to really make things go over the long haul i think is really important
1: yeah and one of the things we talked about early on is that the we wanted to build into people and we think about a discipleship perspective of making disciples that god's way of funding was through tithes and offerings and sacrifice and so we i found myself preaching about sacrifice fairly often it was not a it was not a taboo topic for us yeah. it was just a part of it was a part of the gospel it was a part of uh, it's hard to read the book of acts without running into sure. sacrifice persecution imprisonment almost every chapter i mean, I mean next time you read acts and notice all of that it, it so it was just part of the normal christian life um that we grew up with there it, it wasn't like Okay, something bad's happening to me and why has God forsaken me? There wasn't that mentality because right. because we're struggling this month. It was right. just um, it was just part of life. And then you you trust God through it and you cling to God and you you find God in the midst of, of the suffering and the lack and you trust him to provide. And um, sometimes he did, and other times we just sacrificed. Yeah. So it was one or the other. Either you get your provision or you sacrifice. <laughs> it was just
0: Yeah. I'm interested in uh, some of your, or like one of your favorite stories out of this early time. Like who's obviously coming to Jesus? You know who's giving their lives to Christ? Uh, what's uh, what comes to your mind in terms of one of your favorite stories that's happening in those early days? You
1: know, in the early days, we would have a lot of prayer meetings, and in those days in the Philippines. Philippines, Filipinos go to more movies per capita than anybody in the world. Is that right? It's a movie going culture. And a lot of times they're small homes, not air conditioned homes. And so people go to the movie theater, the movies are cheap and they're sitting in air conditioning and, and the entertainment. So um, we would go and pray for the people on the movie billboards. So we would pray for actors and actresses. <laughs> and then there were also political things happening constantly. And whoever was in the news, we would pray for. And it was interesting that um, it was 10, 15 years later, a movie star gets saved, who was on those posters that we prayed for in the early days. Uh, Best Actress Awards, and then through her, this whole wave of entertainment people come into the church, mm. and then the the son of one of these politicians who was causing the coups, and, you know, was... Well, big-time politicians. I can't say all their names right now. Sure, that's fine. Yeah, we'll leave them off the podcast. That's fine. Through their children, suddenly, Congress and Senate and mayors, and, and so there is a, it's a large church now, but there are, we have more poor people than anyone, but through the poorest people down in this part of the city, a decade later, here we are, Meeting with discipling senators, Congress, um, justices, yeah, people like that. But it goes back to prayer. It goes back to praying for people who are in the news and people who are on those billboards. And just I don't know why we did that. But yeah, those were the people we. It, I would we that would the have the never have occurred to me. I don't know why it occurred to us. Yeah. the billboards were just in your face, and so let's pray for those people right there. <laughs> and uh, it it we look back and go, we've actually are discipling. Not just a few, but dozens of those people yeah. that we prayed for early on. Yeah.
0: So just to get an idea of the scale of how things moved, so present day, uh, Victory Churches in Manila, you know Metro Manila total. I know that's a pretty yeah. large entity. Uh, what are we looking at in terms of like a gross, you know, number of people that are
1: a part of that? <laughs> In Metro Manila, we're one church with 37 locations. Okay. Um, We don't have any large facilities. I mean, the largest would seat maybe 2,000. Okay. So they're not like huge. Yeah, sure. Um, The typical one of those 37 locations would seat probably 600 people. Okay. And on Sunday would have an 8, 10, 12, 2, 4, 6, 8 worship services. Oh, my goodness. And typically Friday Couple of Friday, a couple on Saturday. So usually ten to twelve worship services every weekend in most of those thirty-seven locations. Um, we thirty-seven locations. We have now in Metro Manila around ten thousand victory group leaders. Those are small those discipleship are small group groups. In mm-hmm. all of those locations, I think it's one hundred and fifty-seven worship services every week, all preaching the same sermon or the same text. It's a unique preacher. It's, it's not a video. No videos. There's no video. It's live, or most of them are alive. but live <laughs> uh, preachers. Um, some of the services are straight English. Some are in Tagalog, the mm-hmm. local language. Some are in Taglish, a combination of English and Tagalog, but all preaching the same text All preaching the same big idea, but some of them would be more of an evangelist, some would be more prophetic, some would be more line upon line. I typically have one text and don't ever go to any other verse and do that one. Other people might have 10 supporting verses. So everybody has their personality and their thumbprint on it, how they do it. Yeah. But same main idea. It's the same one, same text. And then our small groups, our victory groups, small group discipleship. They're sermon based. So, no matter where you are in the city, those 10,000 small groups, it's based on the sermon from that Sunday. So, it gives the sermon a shelf life throughout the week. So, you have 10,000 discussion groups going on based on that sermon that was prepared. And so, by Sunday night, everyone can download the small group material from that sermon that was preached. And then it it gives a continuity uh, across the city um, and a, a unity, a synergy. So um out of that we've planted in 80 other cities around the Philippine islands. Philippines is 7,000 islands. Uh 700 are inhabited, so we're in 80 cities outside. That's not okay. one church, those are church plants. What we say in within Metro Manila is a church branch. Okay. We branch in new places, but then when we go outside of Metro Manila, it's a plant. And then we've planted in two dozen other nations. Um Filipino missionaries have gone there to plant churches. So Everywhere from China to India to um, where lately, to Georgia, not the state, but the nation, to um, uh, Kyrgyzstan, um, just Malaysia, uh, Singapore. There's there's a couple of dozen nations where we planted churches with with Filipino missionaries, church planters. So it started from this little (laughs) missions
0: trip, and then it's grown into tens of thousands of people. And uh, what, what is the primary engine that has driven all that growth over the years?
1: In all of the years from 1984 up until now, um, like I said, there's never been one year when we didn't grow, but there's never been a growth goal. I'm not a goal setter. I don't, I don't do goals. Uh, my wife is a, is a really organized goal setter. One year she talked me into doing goals and we wrote them all down and I don't even know what they were mm-hmm. or what happened to that piece of paper. Um, so we've never sat around in a staff meeting after church and talked about how many came to church and how do we get more to come to church. It's never been a goal. Of never had that bro- conversation. Yeah, never. Hmm. The conversations never happened. Never fretting over how many came or didn't come what we talk about is how can we more effectively make disciples? How can we more effectively preach the gospel clearly to more people? Whether they show up on Sunday or not has never been our issue. Um, it's always been about how many get baptized and how many are in small groups. Those are the numbers that matter. Yeah, uh, Because we could, we could set a growth goal and hit it, and not baptize any more people, which means we just collected people from other churches. Right? Baptism has to do with people coming to faith and getting that foundation in their life. Um, We could also get larger and larger crowds and not actually be discipling anyone other than them showing up on Sunday. So I think there are times if we look at the wrong numbers. Numbers are important. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with them. There's a whole
0: there's a whole book about it in the there, Bible.
1: There's a book and then there's the <laughs> book of Acts that that's has a lot of numbers yeah. all the way through that's it. That's right. And even Jesus said whether it was the twelve or the seventy, there were numbers somebody yep, was counting right. or estimating. They were keeping track. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to get the right numbers. And so a lot of people in our position, pastors, they're looking right. at the, how many Nickels up? and noses. Yes. Yeah, and how much money came yep. in. Now we were in a place of poverty. So if we had judged our success on how much money came in, we failed for a long time. Um, if we did it by how many showed up, which we didn't, then that wouldn't have been very encouraging either because at the times of great growth in the nation, we were lagging behind. But we always measured how many are coming to faith in Christ, new believers coming to Christ, and how many are getting in these small groups. And we saw the small groups as a net that we throw out into the ocean and pull it in. And so at some point, they'll get in the boat. I don't care when. At some point, they will. Yeah. But we're more interested in what's going on out there yeah. than just counting Sundays. And so while we didn't ever sit around and set those kind of goals, we did set, okay, we've got, whatever, a hundred small groups now. Yeah. What do we need to do to get it to 150? Okay. Those weren't goals as much as strategies. Sure. How, how do we go from here to here? Knowing that if we increase the number of people making disciples, the caboose of this train is showing up on Sunday. Right. But not trying to figure out how do we get them to show up. That's right. That's not the primary thing that's going to be an outcome if we're focused on the right thing. Yeah, it's an outcome. It's a fruit.
0: So there's been a big hubbub. Um, Where I'm from, it seems to have swept for a lot of Western Christianity, America, you know, UK, Western, so forth, of this whole missional movement. And the idea of, you know, the American church, which is, you know, kind of, if you build it, they will come. If you put on a good enough Sunday show with good enough preaching, make it attractional was kind of the big word, or seeker-friendly was a word for a while, um, that if you did that well enough, you could grow a church. Um, And then... It seemed like that started to fade out in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. Kind of that idea and model certainly gained a lot less popularity. Uh, certainly seemed like there were fewer and fewer people waking up Sunday morning wondering, If and where they should go to church—that's not on anyone's mind where I'm from anymore. Um, No one's no one's thinking that to themselves. They're going to go out for a walk in the woods, and they we we uh, we meet downtown in Corvallis. And I just had a lady last week. She walked by our theater right in the middle of our church service. I was standing outside talking with one of our one of our leaders, and she asked like, "What's going on in there?" You know, our music's going and everything It's like it's church, and she says why would you go to church on this beautiful day that's so boring? You know, like, that's, well, you know, that's yes, that's exactly yeah. what you would think. Of course it is. Anyway, that's very typical. Uh, so I guess back to the point, there was this idea that if you, a good enough Sunday is gonna pull it off, and then it kind of started correcting, like, no, let's go back to smaller communities, small groups, let's turn those missional, let's, let's like, empower people to go out and make disciples and forget about what we do on Sunday, and some people forgetting about that altogether. Um so I guess in that kind of pendulum swing of things like where would you guys align yourselves with those kind of different philosophies of thought.
1: Yeah, Seth, I don't I know that doing ministry most of my adult life in Asia, it's a different world than in Corvallis yeah. where you are. Um doing ministry in a poor nation among poor people, it's different than highly educated people in Oregon or wherever in in, in the U.S. It's a completely different context. So I know that, I know the gospel never changes and I know principles of ministry like love and compassion and caring and serving, they're universal. But what that looks like one place doesn't necessarily, it doesn't look like that somewhere else. I I don't think that what we do... Would necessarily work anywhere else. I think the principles never change, and I think the heart never changes, and obviously the gospel doesn't. Um, but I think for for us, I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent what we do. We the Sunday service matters, yeah, and we work very diligently to have um, a great worship experience sure. that's supernatural and sure. that's that's done with excellence and yeah. and, and really. Hopefully, we have a real life-changing encounter with, yeah. with the Holy Spirit in the presence of God. Filipinos
0: are nothing but vibrant in my personal experience. So,
1: <laughs> And if you get five Filipinos together, you've got at least five singers and <laughs> 10 instruments they can play. They're very musical and very okay. artistic yeah. and very expressive. Yeah. And, and also, we work really hard on working on sermon series that are biblical, yeah. but also connect with the people yeah, there. Sure. So it's not that Sunday doesn't matter. It's no, you not guys the main do, thing we count. You guys count. Do a good Sunday, for So sure. it's, a, it's, a, it's the worship and discipleship. Those two things go hand in glove. It's not an either or. Right. And I think a lot of times people have looked and said, I hear various things. Some say, well, you know, small groups is an Asian thing. And I know culturally, a lot of Asian cultures, Philippines certainly is included in this, a lot of Asians are driven toward being a part of something, whereas Western Americans are driven more toward standing out uh, and making it on our own, especially out on the West Coast. That's, those were the, the heritage sure. of, of that pioneer type of uh, thing. Having said that, there are certainly is a blending and mixing of cultures like never before in America. And so a lot of uh, where you live in, in, in Oregon, there's a, there's a lot of Asian there. And there I, yeah. um, a lot of the Latino cultures are very communal as well. Yep. And so I, I don't think it's just as simple as going, well, th- small groups don't work in America because I think there's an America besides the one I grew up in that yep. is ever growing. But again, I, it's not just small groups because it's possible and common to do small groups and not really make disciples. Absolutely. And it's possible to make disciples and never do small groups. I just found that making disciples can be more effective in a multiplication sense when we do it together. Um, I could disciple five people, one a day, throughout the week, or I could put them all in one group and then I could do five groups that week and I can actually leverage my time by doing it in small groups much better. And in the small group discipleship setting, it's not just me discipling them, they're actually discipling one another yeah and it becomes a give and take and and the relational anchors are very important so um, tell us
0: some of your keys to small group discipleship because you guys have obviously not just hit um, additional growth you guys have actually hit multiplication growth over the years to get where you're at i mean this is it's a pretty phenomenal story and even regardless whatever if we just want to describe the philippines as just the perfect place to do ministry which nowhere is but I just don't, I, it's, it's just too easy to dismiss to say, oh, because it happened in the Philippines. Well, it's the Philippines. And you know what I mean? I just, I don't want to just dismiss that because I think it's still a radical and significant thing that's happened there. So I would, I would love to know. Americans love to dismiss that. We always love to say that would never work in my context. So oh, that, that's, that works there, but it wouldn't work here. And that seems to come out of a lot more of just the insecurities of leaders, fears of leaders than anything else. I guess, in my
1: opinion. And and I think they're right in one sense that what we do won't work. We're in a developing world that's a mega city. Yeah, Most people don't have automobiles. The traffic is... It's usually one of the five worst in the world when you look at the worst traffic. When we first started shifting from one-on-one discipleship in 1989 to small group discipleship, we sent teams from our church to Korea to study the small group phenomena okay. there. And they came back, and I was one of those, and we said, uh, nothing we see here is going to work for us. Really, This is not, but we caught the spirit of prayer. Those people pray. And the, like, the conclusion was, ah. if you pray like that, it doesn't matter what your So that was is. the secret sauce that you like, found. It's like, wow. Yeah. Uh, the prayer will work, but not the way they do it. So, we went to Singapore. There was a big thing happening in Singapore in the early early 90's about small groups and churches that, um, well, it doesn't matter all the names and all that, but they were, there was this explosion. We went and studied Singapore, and yet that's a wealthy society. It's yep. a highly educated. It wasn't anything like the culture we were working in. Almost everybody lives in high-rises. That's not our case. I do. I live in a high-rise, but m- most people don't. And so, Singaporeans had one child. Most of the Filipinos had five. And so Mm. it was a totally different world. But we looked and said, that won't work here. And we went to Bogota, Colombia. And the big phenomena there, some people listening would be aware of that was the big place where God was moving. And again, we said, what they're doing won't work. But we caught the team we sent to Bogota to study. And our point is we studied what was happening in other places because we didn't take the posture, what's going on won't work for us. We went and studied.
0: We got to find something that will, something out of that that will And we got a
1: piece from all of them. We we got a piece from Singapore, this idea of the organizational structure that was important. Hmm. We got the prayer from the Koreans. And when we went to Bogota, we were more organized than what we saw there. But they had this thing, they call it an encounter. Now we don't do it what, what they do. That's what became our victory weekend, but we realized we needed a clearinghouse up front for foundations. And the way those guys had compassion for the lost, the team we sent to Bogota, when they came back to download to us what they learned, they couldn't finish the sentence without crying. Really? It was a compassion for the lost. And it, it was really strange because um, some of you, your listeners, would know Ferdy Kabiling, the running pastor, and Dennis C. Some of our pastors in the Philippines and went. They would try to explain what they experienced in Bogota, and they would start sobbing. These weren't crying kind yeah, of people, right. and it was a heart. For, it was, and I recognized the same thing that happened to me in 1984, a compassion for the lost, and it spread through our church like a, it was. It was like a contagious disease in a good way. Yeah, right. And people started catching this deep love for lost people and it changed us not just the evangelist it changed a teacher like me it changed I didn't ever really become a very good evangelist but my heart was revived again to care about people who are outside of the church and if anything marked us it was that experience that we picked up in Bogota again their system it wouldn't have worked in our context but the spirit uh, I don't even know what to call it, but the contagious actual caring about yeah. the people who are far from God right. and going, we're not just gonna do church for us. Yeah, We needed some way, somehow do church for those. Yeah, And then we actually started changing some of the ways we did church. We didn't become kind of the American seeker friendly, Yeah, but we definitely changed the way we preached so that it was more clearly presenting the gospel yeah. versus I'm not sure what we were doing before, but yeah.
0: Clarity isn't dilution. That's, there's a big difference between those two things.
1: That's, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. So I think we learned a lot. I, I, it's probably more impartation that we got from some of the places where we went and studied. And uh, one of the things that really helped us was actually from San Diego. Um, we picked up a book called Sticky Church. Yeah. Larry Osborne. Yeah, I've and, heard um, it. It's a great one. And we bought hundreds of those. And that's when we started doing We Learned from Larry in San Diego. To do our, I used to write all of our small group material, but then after encountering Larry, we switched it to sermon based, and that was huge for us. Yeah,
0: it integrated the kind of two pieces. Yeah. Yes, it connected the, the Sundays and the, the Sunday midweek worship yeah.
1: together, and it was it was a great move.
0: Yeah, I, what I love about this, I think it takes a lot of maturity. I, I. I think a lot of pastors either fall into this pit or are at least tempted to fall into the pit that every time you see a new model or a new leader that's doing something that looks dynamic, you want to just copy and paste it into what you're doing. And this is classic with the whole conference mentality, right? You go to a conference, yeah. you get exposed to all these ideas and leaders, and you just immediately want to start implementing all these new tricks and, and ideas that you think are going to get you to the next level or double your church in the next nine months or whatever you think it is. But it takes a, it seems to me to take a real patience and maturity, to distill down, there's obviously something working here and here and here. And rather than just trying to become them, try to distill out of them yeah. uh, the the weight of value, right? Like whatever that fruit of the spirit looks like, or whatever that piece is that I can implement, as opposed to just chasing after strategic,
1: yeah. And dynamics. there's there's no silver bullet. There's, there's no, no program or no there's not a model that's universal because I think I think every culture needs to develop its own models. But to have prayer. Gospel-centered ministry, an actual actually caring about people far from God, and actually having compassion—those things work anywhere. And so it's interesting when people say, "Hey, what you're doing won't work in America." I'm going, "Well, what part of praying for the lost and engaging caring about them, loving them, yeah, Yeah. getting involved in people's lives and being godly and gracious and kind and loving, and sharing the gospel? I don't understand what part of that won't work."
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious how you get to a culture, it seems like the holy grail of ministry is getting to that place of multiplication where every every member is truly a minister, uh, is truly a minister of reconciliation. They're out actively loving their friends and their neighbors and they're taking ownership for the work of the ministry themselves. What is it that you guys did to help instill that kind of culture? Because that's where you got to. I mean, you guys didn't, you weren't staff heavy. Um, I mean, no offense to you, obviously, but no like rock star celebrity pastors anywhere, you know, writing bestseller New York Times books, you know, like a lot of American mega churches have. Um, This is really, in many ways, just a grassroots movement of the people loving and reaching people. How do you you get there? What are some of the core things that helps you develop that culture?
1: Seth, you said the phrase grassroots movement. Here's what we did. When we actually used this phrase, it was private among our key leaders. We said, we're going to create a top-down grassroots movement. (laughs) A top-down
0: grassroots. So you're gonna flip
1: the roots. Well, here's what we meant by that. Okay. We're going to orchestrate this, but nobody's going to know it. It's going to feel like a grassroots movement is this like an Illuminati movement, or it's uh, kind of like a shh? <laughs> <laughs> this is a secret. When we went in in nineteen ninety, ninety-one, ninety-two, we went from we had a we had a couple of thousand people attending church at the time, two loca- three locations at the time, couple and maybe twenty-five hundred people, and what we started saying, we shifted from small group, one-on-one discipleship to small group. Mm-hmm. But what I kept saying to all of our leaders, we're not building a discipleship structure for the 2,000 we have. We're building it for the, the 20,000 we have not yet reached. So in other words, we weren't trying to organize everybody we had into groups. Mm-hmm. And honestly, only about a third of them bought in. But it was always about... The next twenty thousand. Now, honestly, I didn't think we would ever have twenty thousand, but that just sounded good—not the two thousand, but the twenty thousand. Right. And it was a way to get people focused on, focused outwardly, and then we were obsessive for years about small group discipleship. And people would come up. We would work it into our sermon illustrations. We would we wouldn't we didn't advertise it, but it would work in. People would say. I heard about these small groups. Can I join one? And our pet answer for years was, you can't join one, but I'll teach you how to start one.
0: Wow. Wow. So that's a huge shift right there. Yeah. I can't think of anywhere that I've been, even in my own church, where that is a normal pattern. But that makes total sense. I mean, that would actually empower people and get them out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause it's easy to get it locked into a small group and just, and that just becomes another consumer yeah. environment.
1: And so for years, what we would do, so, so Hey, can I join one? No, but but I'll, you can start one. High. Okay. And I'll help you that? start yes. one. That's the so key point. You gather four of your friends who are not coming to this church and we'll meet at Starbucks at 6am and I'll do it with you for the first two months. And then in that, you know. At least half of those never made it, Yeah, <laughs> but some of those became... Some you of those don't were.
0: need every, all no, of them no, to no. make it, though.
1: And we didn't pretend like they did make it when they didn't. We didn't have a problem going, hey, you know, this one's dead. Let's just declare it dead and start over. And I would always tell that leader, it's not you. It's probably the location. Let's try it over here, or let's try a different time. But failing was okay. Wow. Failing, it was a culture of where just give it a shot. Wow. And then people would say, but... I've only been in this church and really walking with God for three months. No problem, the people we're reaching haven't been walking with God for three minutes. <laughs> That's right. So as far as they're concerned, your spiritual job, but it was that kind of atmosphere of yeah. a very empowering and a very laser focused on discipleship.
0: And it sounds like even the spiritual growth track itself is based on the way you're loving people outside of yourself versus what it seems to get caught up a lot in is internal Uh, Knowledge based, kind of internal reflection, which is all good and probably necessary for the process. But it seems like when you start with like externally loving someone else, caring and sharing what you have with someone else, you can always add the emotional health, the introspections, you know, spiritual health, spiritual disciplines classes, theology, whatever you need to do along, along the way. But you start with that. Sometimes it's tough to push people yeah. out of the boat to actually go do something.
1: And I think that goes back to Ephesians 4, 4, 11, 12, 13. He says, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip God's people for the works of ministry. And then verse 13 says, they come to a place of maturity. So it's 11, verse 11, the mentors, apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, they equip people to do ministry, and the result of ministry is those very people become mature. But what we do is we say, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher brings maturity, and mm. once you're mature, then you can do ministry. Mm. We flipped it backwards from what Paul said, and uh-huh. I I don't think maturity comes first, then ministry. I think ministry comes then maturity. You think about the first time you led a campus Bible study as a new believer, you matured more than the people you I were sure ministering did. to.
0: I did. I got, I have my master's degree in education, and I know this is the secret of education is that you learn things faster when you have to teach them.
1: Yeah, and so I think the reason a lot of church people aren't mature is because they don't minister to others. Wow. They want people to minister to them. And I believe the only way to break out of the cycles of immaturity, spiritual immaturity, yeah. emotional immaturity, is to begin pouring into others. And so what we've always said is, 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 as long as you stay one chapter ahead, right, and you can disciple the other, and what we meant by that is, if you've been saved a week, you get your roommate on campus, and they come to Christ, you're one week ahead. Yeah, you start reading. Well, we always tell them to read Mark first because it's short and succinct. It's short. And, it's it, to the point. Yes, <laughs> it says what Matthew doesn't half the That's right. In half the words, and so okay, as long as you get to Luke or you get to Acts before they do, but if yeah. they get to Romans first and they will switch it and they'll disciple you. And it's kind of a funny way to say it, but that spirit of you don't have to be a spiritual giant. You just have to be making progress in the right direction and you can help someone else. But that's been kind of the spirit from day one in our church of, it's not perfection that, that, that or maturity you need to do ministry, but it's going in the right direction. Yeah.
0: Direction, not perfection. Yeah, yeah, that's a big mantra that I try to, to use early and often. And I believe I've I believe I've heard you say this at several different times that the goal, um, the goal of Christian maturity, uh, is more about multiplication than it is moralistic perfection. So yes, yes, growing in our character and all that is important, um, but becoming a healthy, like disciple of Jesus is actually getting to the point where you can actually love someone else and help them to know and follow Jesus. Uh, you becoming a moralistically perfect human becomes a bit of a dog chasing its yeah. tail endless, infinite thing that could never involve you actually caring about anyone other than yourself. Yeah. yeah. If that's all you ever focus on.
1: Yeah. And if we had, and again, I think our goal you brought up earlier about missional. And I think, um, I think missional requires that we think outside of the church and we care about our communities and we care about our neighbors and we care yeah. about our campus and and we actually really love and with the love of Christ we're concerned about what's going on out there. And so then we've got to come up with a strategy of what do we do? We yeah. can have a heart that cares but if we don't then have a strategy, right, then we don't really accomplish anything.
0: Yeah. And that's where you need someone who's a little bit further than just one chapter ahead, right? And you do need leaders to actually cooperate across multiple different levels. Steve, this is another thing. I mean, you brought up how you've kind of been able to mine out from all these different locations, like the key thing, I would call it like the secret sauce out of all those places to to apply it to your place. as I've kind of just, from from my vantage point, and that's, you know, I haven't been to the Philippines yet. Oh, you have um, to come. I know. I have to come. I hope, Joe's been inviting you, right? I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I've got, I think I have a standing invitation. Okay. I'd really like to come. Maybe we'll see if we can make it work this summer or something like that. That'd be super fun. But my my observation, and I, I've had to, I've gotten to interact with you. We've been to Israel together on a trip, which was super fun. And uh, I was there with uh, Joey Bonifacio was there. Uh, and a couple of the Filipino leaders were there as Arielle. well. Ariel Arielle uh,
1: broke his leg. Ariel broke his, his he leg. Fell out,
0: he fell out of the mulberry the, tree. No, 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 no. The the uh, the fig tree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I climbed. Of course, I was the Oregonian, so I come across <laughs> uh, the fig tree. I climb in it like good old Zacchaeus, right? Yeah. And uh, and then he tried to duplicate it, and then sprained his ankle when he was jumping yeah. out of it. So I felt partly responsible. Um, but I so I observed this massive church, tens of thousands, hundred thousand. How many people there? But I watch mega leaders, uh, very high-level leaders, very high-strategic-level leaders, very high-productive type A, alpha-type leaders, working together very cooperatively, humbly. Um, That, to me, I don't see very often. It usually seems like, especially in a lot of churches, you you get the level of leaders, of which I've seen multiple in kind of the Filipino church and they have to go do their own thing, as opposed to really coming together, find where they're good at, building something greater together than they ever could have on their own. Uh, That seems really, really rare. And every time I've ever come across a significantly large, whether it's an organization or a church, there has to be more than just one really talented person. There has to be some kind of a team that is functional. I'm just really curious. It seems to me that's a bit of the secret sauce that I observe, how do you, build, um, I guess with leaders, you know, high level leaders to cooperatively work together without stepping on each other's toes, staying humble. I'm sure working through conflict. There's no way you guys haven't had a ton of conflict over the years. How have you, as a leader led other leaders to the, where they stay around, still grow and you guys build something together?
1: That's a good question, Seth. I think the starting point is almost all of those leaders, very few exceptions came to Christ at our church, first heard the gospel at our church, got saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. I did their weddings, okay. I dedicated their babies. So it's home, family. I it's did their family. marriage yeah. it's family. Yeah, it's, it's, there's such a, um, decades of working together. Um, there, so there's a relational, a deep relational connection there. Um, there's also, you, you familiar with, uh, you, of course you are, you played you played football. Um, you know how sometimes college quarterbacks get to the NFL and don't make it, or sometimes they break all these records in college and they don't even get drafted. Right. They're called system quarterbacks. Yeah, They're in a system that made them appear better than they really are. That's right. That's what victory is. Everybody knows it. Really? So you mentioned Ariel, uh, the guy that yeah. fell out of the tree. Yeah. He's a dear friend. He... He was a college student when I met him, and he came to Christ through a little outreach I did. About ten people showed up, and he was the only one who responded. And he's he's a he's a lifelong friend. Yeah. Um, Ariel, he's a CPA. He didn't want to go in the ministry, but he did. He was a finance guy in our ministry, and eventually, we forced him into kind of forced him, but we pushed him into a pastoral role, doing family ministry. He did not want to preach. He said, I'll do ministry. I love helping marriages, but I don't want to preach. We had a situation in one of our congregations had about 600 people in it and we had to move a pastor on and he had to take that one. Yeah. He said, I don't like preaching. I don't want to do this. He did it. That's 15,000 at least today. Really? Years later. 15,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In a Southern part of the, of the city. And so here's a guy who didn't like to preach and didn't like to lead, but right. he got in a system. And I can repeat that story over and over. Yeah. They all know that this didn't get this way because of me. Mm. I know it didn't get that way because of me, but each one of those pastors are going, what I get to lead is because of something we all did together. Yeah. And we constantly remind each other of that, that you're standing on a lot of people's shoulders wow. and there's a synergy that's created um, anytime somebody does start thinking it's because of them, they get that dealt with pretty quickly, hmm. uh, by their friends and by their, their peers. But there, there is a system. There is, there's the heart, Boy, the love, really the compassion, scene. the faith and all that. But there is a system. It very clearly is. I don't know that that system could be exported because again, we're a 34 year old church in a city of 20 million, um, so to take that and drop it in Midland, Texas, in a smaller, different culture, but the principles don't ever change. Yeah. Um, but I do think the system's important because sometimes we get, let's just have a right heart and let's be loving people. and, and all, But if we don't have some level of organization, yeah. then we don't get a whole lot done.
0: You guys obviously need a significant amount, but the heart of humility. I wonder if, what do you think about church planning? Church planning is something we're both, favorable yeah. towards. Uh, I've helped plant two church, two churches in the last couple of years. I, I mean, I haven't gone personally, but sending yeah. out pastors and trying to help them with that. Um, I wonder if there's a danger in church planning of be, you know, feeling like the self-made pastor in a sense. I planted this. I started this. There's no acknowledgement or awareness of anyone else's shoulders that you're standing on when you do something like that. If you almost lose that sense of reverence yeah. you know, of, and humility in the yeah. whole thing.
1: Well, you know, I was in Portland with Simon, who planted that right. out of your church, and he was the opposite of that. Right. Because he's introducing me to everyone you sent there. Right. And the people that right. you discipled and yeah, all of his Corvallis, leaders. Yeah. And he was, he was exactly what we want. Yes. People who see they're a part of something larger, and they had their opportunity because of it. And I think that's healthy. I think the independence is not healthy at all. Yeah.
0: I know. I mean, there's a lot of people that have even, you know, I've just seen, I've been around a lot of church planners and not all of them are deeply connected into family and are really doing it on their own. And I watched them struggle for it. Um, and I just, I just wonder, I wonder about that. Sometimes I, I, uh, I get concerned that, you know, the American ego of the entrepreneur has just taken a new form spiritually in the, in the church planner at times.
1: Yeah. And the, there's an entrepreneur spirit required. There is. Gosh, that by itself isn't. There's maybe a redeemed and an unredeemed aspect yeah, of that. Uh, there, yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, you um, you ask about maybe the secret or the at the core of what what has helped us. Um, you mentioned Joey Bonifacio. We were um, he was my next door neighbor for 12 years and dear friend. Um, I'll see him in a couple of weeks in Singapore, but. We both ministered at a large church in Brisbane, Australia. It's, mm-hmm. it's a Pentecostal church outside of our movement, but the pastor has become a friend over the years. And um, that church was running at the time about 7,000 people, great church. Their music goes all over the world. And uh, they had just under 70 full-time staff with a church of 7,000. Mm-hmm. And he felt understaffed, which maybe maybe he was, uh, 7,000, about 70 staff, full-time staff. And at that time, Joey was leading one of our congregations in Manila that ran about 7,000 people, and Joey had 19 full-time oh staff. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so when I talked to my friend Mark in Australia about that, he just folded it up right there and got his key staff and said, we're coming to Manila. I need to see how this is done. Well How is it possible that we have the same number of people, yeah. and we have 70 staff and feel understaffed, and you have 19 staff yeah, and we didn't feel understaffed at all. Yeah, in that congregation, Joey was leading, and and that gets back to part of the heart of this is most of that staff those were admin people. Mm-hmm. And we we don't pay people to do ministry, we pay people to equip people, we pay people to administrate, but we feel like the ministry is in the hands of the people. Wow, and so it's a it's a it's an idea of of. Um, mobilizing back to Ephesians 4, 11, 12, 13. Our, my job is to not do all the ministry. My job is to equip and empower people to do ministry. Yeah. Can they do it as effectively as I can? Some yes, most no, but, but that's all not the of point. them together yeah. are a lot more effective
0: That's right. than me. That's right, yeah. You have to have a pretty small church to be more effective than, yeah. the, than your actual body of people. Yeah, definitely. That you have. Steve, you, uh, you've you obviously traveled all over the world, serve and, and help lead in so many different contexts, and you have, I think through that, probably such a unique perspective. I'm interested if you, I mean, what is it that you would say to the American church or to American Christians or pastors kind of listening, kind of based on your experience that you've been on around the world? What is it that you, is there a message that you feel like kind of American Christianity needs to hear, either something of encouragement or something even maybe a little bit more corrective based on what you're seeing of the gospel and what it's, what's happening, what's, what God's doing around the world?
1: Seth, I think on the encouraging side, there's hardly anywhere I go in the world that uh, is not impacted in a positive way by American missions.
0: Really? Um, you don't hear about that much these days.
1: Yeah,
0: foreign missions are
1: are, have really fallen off the conversation radar generation ago, but Mm -hmm. yet um, more recently, I was just in Spain at our Every Nation Church in Madrid, Mm -hmm. and I see actually our missionary there is a Filipino married to an Austrian. Nice, but there were Americans on the team, and then the churches in the city now Madrid's a tough place. um, Hardly any churches in the whole country more than 100 people, but but yet the impact of American missions, and we go to Africa and all over Asia, whether I'm in Indonesia, Singapore, Cambodia, we were just talking about missionary American mm-hmm. missionaries in Cambodia, so I see a lot of great things. Now, some of the missionaries have done their work and left, and now there are locals running everything, and that's a great thing, but still it goes back to, Mission sending, mission money, mission investment, yeah. and a lot of it you can look back and nitpick and go, well, this was a bit colonial here, and this sure, was sure. Those uh, methods that there's weren't There's always yeah. that, but yet the gospel still took root. Yeah, and it's
0: it's God makes it's, a lot of straight lines with crooked sticks. Yeah, a,
1: a, abs- and with bad strategies and yeah. terrible training. Because I look back at what I did the first decade in the Philippines as an ignorant, untrained American, and it, it's embarrassing a lot of what I did. But the gospel overcame my own terrible leadership decisions and my lack of training and my bad attitude often and just my Americanism clashing into a culture that I should have been respecting, but I wasn't because mm. I didn't understand it. Uh, you know, there's a, but yet it still worked because of the gospel. So that's one I think um, I appreciate the American church uh, that historically has cared about the world. Um whether it's been perfect in the way it's done mission or not, it's it did it. Yeah. That's what mattered. Yeah. It does bother me a bit that there's a backing off of missions mm-hmm. and defining missions totally locally. Yeah. I think the pendulum swung from yeah, missions was out there, and now yeah. we're saying missions is here. Yeah. I agree with that hundred percent. Let's just say both. both I say hand. it's both. Yes. Yeah. It's Acts one eight. It's the Holy Spirit empowers us to reach our Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's not multiple choice, it's all of the above. (laughs) Um, And so, I I love that about the American church. The American church is generous. I know most pastors probably don't think their church is (laughs) generous, but (laughs) overall, the American church has done a lot of good with money and has been overall generous, and I wish the church and the rest of the world would be as generous as the American church Mm. has. Um, Having said all that, I think having lived overseas so much and having white kids who grew up in a brown world in Asia, yeah, um, the idea of monoethnic communities, now where you live, it might be a monoethnic world. Um, there's not as much diversity it's Maybe close. in other places, yeah. but for people who grew up in my son's generation, of course they did have a unique upbringing being Americans in, in the Philippines, but the idea of being in an all-white church just wouldn't work for them. Mm. It just wouldn't. And and there's. That'd be weird for them? Yeah, it yeah. would. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't make sense. When my oldest son went to, uh, they're all tennis players, and when he was being recruited to play tennis at Lipscomb University. Yeah, in Nashville? Nashville, mm-hmm. which is a Church of Christ school, and Church of Christ is pretty white. Mm-hmm. And I'm calling him from Manila going, how did the campus tour, what did you think about the coach? He goes, Dad, love the coach. Facilities, great. He goes, but... It's all white. He go, <laughs> then here's what he said. He goes, I don't know if I'll fit in. Uh, I go, okay, this is a white kid. He's like he's Filipino going, at heart. Yeah. yeah, he's going, I don't know if I'll fit in. Uh, and then my, so he ended up going there. He played at Lipscomb. And then my youngest son went to Belmont. And the reason he gave, it's right down the street from Lipscomb and, and, mm-hmm. and Nashville. He said, he said, Dad, because the, actually he liked the coach there. But he said, he said, the Lipscomb team is all white Americans. And the Belmont team was mostly Latinos. Brazilians and South Americans, he was the only white kid on the team. And he felt more comfortable. He felt more comfortable there and uh, fitting in. But anyway, I think that's one is the diversity. I think the younger generation, not just my kids who grew up overseas, I think there's a desire for diversity. Um, And so you'd like to see more of those integrated church
0: communities that are actually reflecting the diversity of their cities and communities at large. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I I, I think that's important. not just in America, but anywhere. But I think here in America, that's important, especially with the way our, I think that's a chance for the church in America to be a witness in a culture that seems to be getting increasingly more divided and polarized ethnically in every other way. But to have the church be the opposite of that, I think would be a great thing. And I I think in our world and every nation, most of our churches, are giving it their best shot some are more effective than others maybe because of the communities they're in but i think it's the heart of all of them
0: i think that's i think that's you know i think that's a relatively modest statement i've never encountered churches on the scale of every nation churches in North America of how much diversity they represent. I mean, I'm always, sometimes I'm taken aback because you just take it for granted. You know, yeah. It's just, you walk into a church and you see the mix of, you know, white, black, Latino, Asian, and it's just, yeah. Yeah, this is just, this is just the way a lot of our churches are. Um, but I, there, I don't go to many other churches at yeah. all like that.
1: It's well in December, I was in one of our churches here in Orlando. We're in Orlando now having this conversation in actually in Lake Mary, north of Orlando. Uh, Pastor Shadi Solomon, yeah. who's Egyptian, uh, married to an American. And it's amazing. His church, you could not tell what it was. It's about a fourth African American, a fourth Caucasian, a fourth Latino, and a fourth Asian. With an Egyptian pastor. With
0: an Egyptian pastor. And it's growing. An Egyptian it, pastor who's a loudly self-proclaimed African-American. So. <laughs> yes, 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 who was born in Africa,
1: <laughs> in Cairo. <laughs> but it's a, you can't, is it, is it a black church? Is it a white church? Is it an Asian church? What, what is this? It was such a beautiful mix that um, it's, a, it's kind of a sign and a wonder where it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I, I I really hope the church does go in that direction more and more. Um, in in the diversity that your kids were raised in, what uh, I mean, what are some of the values that you see, especially your your son's generation? What are the values that you see that you saw get get embedded in them because of the diversity they were around? Uh,
1: gosh, you'd probably be good to ask them that. I'm I'm not sure, except that it was part of it growing up as minorities in a brown world yeah that's a whole
0: nother fascinating conversation and it's
1: also growing up surrounded by poverty yeah now, I didn't grow up around poverty yeah I, I my dad had his own business and I was playing golf at the country club and we were skiing at the lake and we had a lake house and horses and the whole I, I didn't grow up around poverty and I think that's one reason I went to private schools and so when I go to the Philippines I was the least likely person so I show up there and suddenly I'm surrounded by poverty for the first time in my life yeah and it changed me something snapped in me something uh, I, it was like it was spiritual poverty and it was material poverty yeah. And it was I have to do something I can't go back I, I can't I can't get away from this yeah. I, I couldn't um, I couldn't leave and so I think And I'm grateful to God that my wife and I talk about it often. My sons are 31, 29, and 27 now. Mm -hmm. And we're grateful that while they missed out on extended family, Mm -hmm. they missed out on knowing their grandparents. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things they missed out on. But what they got by growing up face-to-face with the kind of poverty and the spiritual revival they were in, It was just normal for them. And I don't know how... uh, They didn't understand the black and white issues in America when they came here. Sure. Because they just didn't live in it. Right. And, of course, they grew up in every nation, so their friends were black, white, Latino, Asian. It just was... They were all just their friends. Yeah. They were... They had to study up because they didn't take American history in schools over there. So they were pretty ignorant of American history as well, uh, except maybe through movies. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm... um, I'm really, uh, I look at that generation and I think my kids may be the extreme for growing up overseas, but I think that whole generation is much more global in their outlook than certainly my generation. Yeah. And, um, and I think they wanna see that not just on Instagram and their, di- their, their um, digital friends, and, but they want it in their real relationships. And I think there's opportunities on campus certainly our campuses are diverse with a lot of internationals and a lot of those are staying in america they're not going back yeah and they're more open than ever um i think they i I watched um uh, one of my sons who studied at belmont um he would have there were kurds there there were iranians there were south americans and they were anyone you reach out to they became friends my one of my other sons who was at lipscomb there were a bunch of Malagasys from Mal- Madagascar. Yeah. And he gravitated. They're about the only non-white people on the campus, and they became good friends and, and were coming to church while they were, you know, while they were in America. And I think there's inter- the internationals God brings to our to our nation, whether they're immigrants, documented or not, yeah. or whether they're students who might go home or they might stay. Yeah. But I think they're more open than ever. And I think the younger people really want to connect with
0: yeah, with those people, which I think is extremely cool. Yeah. extremely cool. Steve, uh, before we let you go, I'm wondering if you kind of have a, a final thought. If you were to give a word to um, to leaders out there listening, uh, Christian leaders in particular. I mean, what uh, what is the word that you like that you would want to leave with them? Word of encouragement, or kind of from where you're at in your life and perspective of where you're kind of looking back on your life and ministry and what, what would you say to leaders who are listening here? Well,
1: to give you a, a future to look forward to, I think uh, the grandfather gig is the best I've ever done. Nice. Yeah, that's something to live for. That's, that's right. <laughs>
0: Play with them and hand oh, them back. Oh, God, yeah, that's that's
1: <laughs> the best of all worlds. Um, so you've got that to look forward to. Uh, but first, you have to get through a lot of things to get that's there.
0: That's right. I heard someone say recently that uh, grandkids are the reward for not killing your children. So
1: <laughs> that, I, yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. 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 And raising three sons that it. my first one was a granddaughter. Now that's a whole oh, other world go. right there. Um, you know what I would, um, I would encourage people out there who are, and I think a, um, a lot of your listeners are, a lot of them are people in church yeah. church people. Uh, some of them are pastors like you and yeah. I. Um, but I would say whether you're, a church person, whether you're a church leader or whether you're not yet there, yeah, um, I would encourage all of you to take a long-term view of things. Um, think about the end, and, and I think we, the way we've always said it, and it was sort of my life drive, is out of uh, uh, First Thessalonians four one, where Paul talks about learning to please God. And doing what pleases God, mm. and we took the phrase and said, "We want to live to honor God," and that's not done in a moment. It's not done in a week. It's not done by looking back of how successful were we in ministry the last month or so. But it's taking a whole view of life. Yeah, and, a and life living kind. to honor God, living to please God, uh, living to do what what touches His heart. And if people around applaud, great. If they don't, yeah, who cares? Uh, but we're living unto him. We're living, uh, we're living for his pleasure. We're living for his glory. We're living for his honor. Um, it's about him, not about us. And so that that would be my thought.
0: Those are great words, Steve. Really appreciate it. really appreciate your time on the podcast. Thanks for stopping by. And chatting here in Orlando, and I hope we get to do it again sometime soon.
1: Hey, Seth, thanks for doing this. I was uh, happy when I heard you were doing a podcast, and I'm really glad you're doing it. In fact, when you come to Manila, yes, we'll interview you on our Leadership Video Podcast. Yes. We'll sit you in the chair and have Joseph Bonifacio interview you in front of the cameras. We'll get makeup on you, the whole deal. Oh. We'll have you looking like a movie star.
0: Boy. All right. I'm in it. I'm Filipino Hollywood. Here I come. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve.